This is Andrew Jorgis, New York City real estate attorney, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. This is Naomi Klein, representing the Compass Office in Beverly Hills, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. What up, everybody? This is Chef Jack Harris of the uh, Talk Team Podcast. This is Jade with the Jessica Northrup team from Denver, Colorado, and you are listening to The Real Talk Podcast. Yo, what up, everybody? Welcome to Real Talk. Today, I have a special guest, Andrew Georges. Uh, Andrew is our attorney, the talk team's attorney, representing our clients both on the buy side and sell side, and even litigation on certain aspects of a deal when it comes down to it. As a Penn State grad majoring in accounting, he was employed at KPMG for a year before jumping back into law school at the Cardozo School of Law back in 2009, the height of the real estate market. <laughs> Upon graduation, he practiced law at a small midtown shop that specialized in residential commercial transactions and then transi- transitioned to one of New York City's premier real estate law firms down on Wall Street. Uh, ranked as Super Lawyer's rising star, Andrew has transacted over a thousand buy side and sell side deals during his career. I can tell you from my personal experience, having dealt with a few dozen attorneys, most won't compete with the level of skills Andrew can bring to the table. Just like brokers, Not all attorneys were created equal. Some attorneys will disappear when the deal gets tough or stop responding to emails once they get their retainer or they have too much pride and get some way to the closing table. Andrew's been a great resource for us and I'm happy, I'm stoked to have you on today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. I'm also joined by Danielle Stout, my co-host. What's up, everyone? (laughs) And... Uh, yeah, I, I'm just super glad that you finally made it on. I've been looking at your newsletters for quite some time that I've been getting for a couple of years, and finally asked me to join, and I am beyond excited. Yeah, and you know we've been we've been talking we've been talking about this for for you coming on for a few weeks now, so it's good to finally get you on. I know you're a, a listener, a fan of the Real Talk Pod, and uh, it's always nice to have listeners also join in on the podcast. Honored to be on. I have been listening to them. All very inter- <laughs> interesting, informative, and uh, people from different sectors of real estate. So yeah, it's good cool. stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, before we get into the nitty gritty about real estate, uh, I, I just want to throw out a really left field question. You know, just to like warm up. You know, what is your in our last guest, who you know very well, Brian Renzenbrink, uh, asked this asked Danielle this question. What is your most irrational fear? My most irrational. So Danielle, ha- Danielle, actually, to warm, you can think about it, Danielle. Yeah, what, it took me at least three days to come back with an she'll answer. She'll answer first. <laughs> You're gonna answer first, and then I'll go. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I'll piggyback and then just steal yeah. your answer. Okay. Well, when Brian asked asked this, I could not come up with anything, but a few days later, I finally determined. Um, my biggest irrational fear is waking up and being blind. So. Okay. <laughs> so like when I sleep at night. It cannot be a pitch black room or I'll wake up and I think I have gone blind. Okay. There that's needs a, to be like a little light somewhere. That's a good one. Yeah. And that is irrational, I guess. I, just, I guess so. Very um, rational. It's very rational to me. But Yeah. What about you? Uh, for me, oh, it's probably something similar in that I think I have a rational fear that I'm going to wake up. I, I have a dream that I'm still in law school. I haven't read for an entire <laughs> semester. And then I have to go take the exam, never having gone to class or read. And then I wake up and I realize, wow, I got to go to work. And <laughs> there is no exam. So. Anyway, so moving on, irrational fears. Congrats. 
passed the bar. All right. You're a practicing licensed attorney. Yes, exams behind me. Exams, exams behind me. Uh, tell me, wh- why did you get into New York City real estate? Why did you decide to practice law within that field? Um, I think everybody has, everybody, every lawyer has some quirky reason why they enter into law. But for me, I think in some weird way, my fam, I'm first generation, my family, my parents and my grandparents came from Cuba. Yeah. And so like any family that comes from another country and they leave for political reasons, um, they leave for, politi- for political reasons, you, you hear stories from your parents and your grandparents of, you know, some, some things that just don't happen in this country. Right. You know, I heard stories of the government taking their property, their sure. businesses. And, you know, when you're, you know, as for my parents, being a kid and having your home taken away by the government and then having to leave, that's an incredibly traumatic experience. So I would hear those stories and it, it probably marinated in my mind when, as I was growing up and then I went to college and I was just always fascinated by real estate ownership rights. And when I got to law school, you know, you take a property class and, you know, what rights do you have? Right, right to own, right to possess, right to sell, right to purchase. Those are all things that I think really resonated in me. And during law school, I started working for a so a, a small practice doing real estate. I, again, just continue to fall in love with it. And it's going to be eight years later, I'm still doing it. Good. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why investors, I'm not just talking about New York City, but Buyers throughout the world invest in New York, New, um, invest in, in the United States, primarily because yeah, the taxes are high and government right now is probably not liked from an international standpoint. But foreigners continue to pour money into American real estate assets because not only is it a hedge against inflation, but the United States, despite what you hear in the news, still has accounting laws, real estate laws, ownership laws, where. Their assets are still protected by the government under these regulations and, and, and laws. You feel safer rather than, let's just say, pouring money into another country's uh, real estate and finding out that you actually don't own them. Sure, yeah. yeah. Listen, foreign investment in the U.S. is not stopping, right? As bad as the economy might get or um, as tough as transfer taxes might be or mansion tax, whatever the city and federal government do to you know, increase what the closing cost might be to spur more um, money in the government's coffers. It's a sound investment. Nobody's going to knock on your door and say, "Hey, listen, this is now mine," exactly. or give it to, the, or give it to the military. Right. Right. And so uh, there's a certain level of assurances that that buyers can have that it's you know it's going to be there for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So so you practice uh, New York City real estate. Why why New York City? You could have gone to, you could have stayed in Pens- You could have stayed in Pennsylvania. In, in, uh, I could have I said, know. yeah. What is it? What is it? Uh, what's Penn State? That city? What's it State called? College. State College State, City. Yeah. The city State of College. State College. So State a great College. name. Happy Valley. Sure. Uh, sure. Sorry, I'm talking crap. I've been there. <laughs> great name, guys. What's the airport called? State College Airport? I never flew in. I never, but probably. Um, it's the most original name you could think of. Yeah. And that, the entire university there is, have you, have you been recently? No, not in the last 10 years. My brother went there. He graduated, so I was, I've been there since. The, the whole town is just Penn State geared, and it's, it's a great place. It's always has been, yeah. Yeah, it's a great place to be between the ages of 18 and 22, uh, or however long, for some people a little longer. Uh, yeah. but, but, uh, Must be hell if you're a grad student. Yeah, if you're a grad student. It's a great place, great environment, but once you graduate, I want it to be New York City is just, the, in my opinion. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, and your family's from Jersey. We're from northern Jersey. Yeah. yeah, I grew up in northern New Jersey, and I've just always, I'm a Bruce Springsteen-loving Jersey boy, where, yeah. where uh, the, the city was big lights, big buildings, and yep. 
any kid who's from from uh, who's not from New York City that drives in when they're a kid, and you look up and you're just in awe of how big the buildings are, and you look, you know, your neck is just stretched out, and it's it's New York. Where else to be? Yeah, no, I get it. It's uh, everybody's dream to make it here, right? If you can make it here. You can make it anywhere. Hopefully. Another Jersey boy. <laughs> another Jersey boy, might I add, Frank Sinatra. That's it. Sinatra. That's it. Um, all right. So you know, we, Andrew and I met on a deal. Uh, he was on the other side as a sell side attorney, I believe, and I was on the buy side, mm-hmm. or opposite. Opposite. Yeah. Opposite. I was on the sell side. You were on the buy side. Correct. It was eighteen eighteen at forty five Tudor City Place. Wow. And I you remember was not a fan of the of these sell-side attorney that was chosen out of my control. But I realized the way you communicated, the transparency, the timeliness of your response, I thought, oh, this attorney's pretty good. I like his style. So I, that, was, that, was our, that was the beginning. It seems like just right? yesterday. Yeah, and several dozen, several dozen deals later. Yeah, right here. yeah. What, what aspect of, I mean, those are some co-op deals. What aspect of a co-op deal do you like over, let's just say, another deal somewhere outside of New York, like maybe like a townhouse, single family? I mean, f- for you, does it make that much of a difference, preference-wise? Well, with a co-op, um, uh, with co-ops as opposed to, you know, single family. Single family homes in like Brooklyn or... Yeah, the, the main uh, difference is going to be, in my opinion, due diligence. Right. Right, so you're buying into a corporation that is comprised of shareholders, yeah. right, who own stock in this corporation. And understanding the financial risks of the building, uh, you should be reviewing financial statements, audited financial statements for the past two years in the building, reviewing board minutes, looking at the building's offering plan, understanding what the risks are with a particular project. But that doesn't mean that you're doing more work for a co-op because these townhouses, let's just say in Brooklyn, inherently have issues too. They do. A lot of the issues are discovered in those types of deals through an engineer who's inspecting the property. Right. Sure, I'm looking at the property tax statements, the certificate of occupancy, are there violations, but... It seems like every house in Brooklyn has an issue with the CFO. Every, every, every <laughs> house it's in Brooklyn... It's wrong, yeah, always. Yeah, the CO is a problem. I always say Brooklyn's... When you're buying Brooklyn townhouses, it's like the Wild West. You know, sometimes an owner 20 years ago put an additional extension on or there's a porch or they're using the garage as an Airbnb, right? It's just... It's People wild. do things that they shouldn't do, and then during the course of the transaction, from somebody buying that, you got to figure out: Well, what am I inheriting? Am I? Is it worth the risk? Is it not worth the risk? And how can we come up with a solution? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it always worth it, in your opinion? If you're representing a buyer, is it always worth the risk? So I never answer that question. I, I <laughs> never. The number one question I get from from clients are. What would you do? Yeah. Or what do you think? <laughs> my job is not to, to give you my level of risk, right? Everybody has a different level of risk. Your level of risk is different. I just happen to be risk averse. It's a business decision. It's a, it's a business decision. So what, it's almost like saying, would you buy this property for a million dollars? Or would you buy this property for one, two? I can't tell you I would or wouldn't, mm-hmm. right? The circumstances are different. For, I just had actually a deal not long ago where um, a building had a land lease where the co-op didn't own the land on which the building sat. Sure, who owned it? City of New York. Oh, nice. So... Was it Battery Park? Uh, yes. Oh, good. So the broker on the deal wasn't totally familiar with land leases and was like, well, hey, listen, I, I can't believe anybody would ever buy in any land lease. That seems so odd. That Battery Park aside, 
any land lease is going to come to an ex you know there's an expiration of the lease and then what happens when the lease expires you got to renew it and then what's the term but my client was 95 years old he was just looking for a place, <laughs> right? So the circumstances are different He'll for, for ten more years, right? Twenty more years max. Deal. So while for him, for him, a land lease of just twenty years is insignificant, might be insignificant, and so that's a risk that he was had to decide on. Me, I'm you know thirty four. You're thirty four. That's yeah. that's not young nece buck. Not necessarily. Thank you for publicly announcing your age. Yeah. <laughs> for those wondering, uh, I that's not a risk that I would take. Well, but the most eligible bachelors, ladies and gentlemen. No, no, no not 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 I'm engaged to be married. You're not no. Sam, please don't listen to this. My soon-to-be-beautiful wife, who I love dearly. Oh, yes. And I know, I, I know, no, soon-to-be wife, who is beautiful. Who is beautiful. She will absolutely be, be beautiful. Yeah, she will absolutely be listening Sorry, to Sorry, Sam, her. I slipped. Let's talk about some complicated deals. Sure. I mean, you and I have worked on some tough, tough deals. I mean, yeah. what, what, yeah. we're actually, even we, now, we've hit them, we've been, we've taken it to the mat a couple we, of times. We've talked to, we've represented clients where they didn't know they owned the, the condo. Remember that one? I do remember that one. <laughs> yes. They, they yes. forgot about it? That was an interesting deal. It, 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 was, it was a um, condo. They, it was probably worth, if they put it on the official market, it was probably worth at least five fifty, six hundred thousand. But they wanted to do it off the market. So it is what it is. They, you know, your wish is my command. Uh, but th remember, he forgot that he owned... Well, it was an interesting. It. Yeah, it was a client, and not to get into the specifics of who it was, no, but no, no, long no. story short, it was a, it was a scenario where a uh, condominium unit owner thought that he lost the apartment to foreclosure, a bank foreclosure. <laughs> yes, he um, thought. Yeah, he thought. He, he, he in fact didn't. The common the, the condominium association then went ahead and tried to foreclose on the common charge lien, and it took them probably almost 12 years, I then got involved, um, maybe um, I got retained about a m month or a couple of weeks before the common charge lien was going to be actually auctioned off. Yeah. We filed an order to show cause to stay the, the auction. Okay. Uh, it was granted. We redeemed the amount under the lien. We paid off the outstanding common charges. He got the apartment back. He sold it. <laughs> Everybody moved on. It was really How one of those New York stories. months or years of common charges can... They be delayed on before the condo takes action. Is that is that case by case, or does it depend on the building? Well, in this particular scenario, I he, he I think it was like he hadn't paid for five years or something, <laughs> and, and and the common dominion was covering the real estate tax. Right. So, um, but a, a let's just say five years. You know, an apartment like that's a one bedroom. You're probably looking at twelve G's max a year. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember what the exact numbers were, but right. uh, that was that was you, you. I haven't thought about that deal in quite some time, but. I mean, that was a weird one. That was a New York City story. Very New York yeah. City story. Yeah. See, right. to answer, to, to circle back, that sort of thing doesn't happen in State College, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Never. Right? Never. At least oh, you don't think it does. But it's a pretty nice windfall to have after 30 years after owning something that you thought you didn't own, you actually still had in your name. It worked out. Not bad. It worked out. Not a bad idea. How about some other tough deals that we worked on, man? Do you want to talk about, like, what about the one where it, the, the closing got delayed like five times? We we actually went to the closing table. I yeah with you because I ten thirty one exchange too. We've had a couple ten thirty one exchanges. I know with you. I know you know the good thing about work. You know you stay on top of the files that you're on. So if you you guys know when closing dates are, you follow up. Have have you reached out to the buyer on their commitment letter? Where's the what's the status of the closing? That's all you, the deal. You, you do a good job. A lot, but a lot of agents don't do that. A lot of agents, uh, you know. 
And other brokerages don't do that. And so I find that with our deals, they tend to, from inception of the deal to closing, close more quickly. Yeah. And a lot of times, if we have to send out a time of essence letter, we're not afraid to do that. We're very comfortable. It's a trend. We've been doing a lot of TOEs or talking about TOEs these days, huh? Because buyers want to push deals off. I wonder why. Yeah. There's yeah. no urgency anymore. No urgency side. whatsoever. Even after they sign contracts. Yeah. They have no urgency. Everyone's taking their time. Seems seems very weird. Like, yeah, we're buying this, but we have seven other things that are more important going on. And, oh, TOE? Oh, we didn't know what that was. Oh, okay. I guess we'll now close. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. It's Maybe it's a the type of buyer that the market is strumming up, but the deals I have seen that buyers are dragging, you've got to drag them to the closing table to get them to exchange. Tell the listeners what TOE is real quick. Sure, so TOE is short for time of essence. Um, In New York, there are two, you can memorialize a closing date two ways, more or less. One is by having a time of essence date written into the contract, so if I'm, if I'm selling to talk and I'm selling to talk on January 1st, time being of the essence, well then you've got to close by January 1st. And if you don't, you, you risk losing your deposit. The deposit is forfeited. Yes. Well, yes, more or less. Mm-hmm. The other way that you can memorialize a closing date, which is how the majority of residential closings are memorialized, is you have an on or about date. Yes. Which says, I will close with talk on or about January 1st. So either party can really... Uh, push the closing for a reasonable time, which New York courts say is about 30 days. But I can't force you to close on January 1st. All I could do is if you for, if you fail to close on January 1st, I wait till January 2nd, I serve you a TOE notice for 30 days thereafter, and then that has the effect of unilaterally designating a time of, a, of essence closing date. Mm-hmm. Boring stuff, I know, probably for many <laughs> people listening to the podcast, but... <laughs> Um, no, a, actually, a very important when 10% tool, of yeah. your purchase price is on the deal, is on the hook to be potentially forfeited, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, a lot of clients, we, you and I have many clients that are selling properties that are vacant. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So for every day that goes by, that's one additional per diem day of mortgage, that's right. common charges or maintenance, right. property taxes. Right? So if you have a buyer that's, that's just dragging their feet, really potentially reconsidering the deal, you know, and it's not our preference to do that. We don't like sending time of essence letters, nope. but... If you have somebody who's refusing to close, what else do you do? That's what the law says you can do. Right. Tell me, what was the dollar volume you did last year? How much property did you represent in closings? Um, last year, if I had to guess, probably uh, somewhere around $100 million worth of closing. $100 million. Yeah. Could you roughly estimate how many units is that? How many closings Oh, I couldn't even. I couldn't even tell you the. the I mean, because the average price in New York City for condos is one point six, one point five million. Average price for co-ops is like one somewhere in the one point two million range. So you're probably at. I mean, obviously you're gonna have a couple big ones here and there. You're probably at maybe almost a hundred closings, or a little under a hundred closings. I mean, and uh, probably north of there. I mean, a lot of don't forget a lot of deals also fall apart at some point sure, during course. the course of the deal. Um, so, you know, somewhere around there, north of there, um, some deals tend to be bigger than others. Um, we've had some, you know, sexy deals the last few years that, you know, made it into different publications, which we're proud about, but um, every deal is different. And What is the publications, like New York Times, or are you talking about, like, industry 
magazines that we don't know about. <laughs> like, yeah, no, we've we've had some we've had some deals that show up in in, in you know the Times, the Real Deal, uh, Real Estate Weekly that get picked up, but uh, you pick up the publication, you say, yeah, it's pretty cool, it's my deal. Okay, tell tell me about what was the largest deal, single transaction that you represented last year. How how much was it? Uh, we or did around. we did a deal for for just for almost twenty million. Twenty million. Yeah. Twenty million. Was it a uh, house? It was a townhouse. Townhouse. Yeah. Down, okay. Townhouse downtown. You were uh, on the buy side. I was on the sell side. You were on the sell side. Okay. Yeah. So what type of people get into that? You know, properties like that. Well, who who was the buyer? Splat without giving without names, giving a, exactly, yeah. without spelling names or trying to rhyme out a name. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we. I don't. I don't like to get into who the specifics are, but splash. I mean, we represent, we represent people in deals that are you know musicians and athletes and people that are in politics and, and finance, and that's the interesting part of the job. Where every file, I always joke. I say each file is like an episode of, of a show where a new villain is presented. There, there is a... AKA the buyer or the seller. <laughs> there is some obstacle that has to be overcome and then you get to a successful conclusion at the end and then you roll credit and then the very next week there's a new villain that is presented and a new obstacle. And so uh, every deal has its nuance but I think that to me and maybe you tell me if I'm wrong is that what keeps you... That's what keeps your feet moving. Is just there's hair on every every deal. deal. Every deal is different, <laughs> and you got to roll your sleeves up and figure it out. And that's what keeps keeps me interested. The challenge is always there. It's, yeah. it's always a different challenge. Now, I'll tell you what, I do wish sometimes there were no villains in some episodes. <laughs> in my opinion, then it's just a boring show. It would just be a boring <laughs> show, but our lives would be a little bit easier. Yeah. But as they say in our business, you know, no low pressure guarantees low results, and high pressure sometimes gives you high results. Here you go. Doesn't guarantee, but high. Um, to, for some of the listeners, I mean, this is a business entrepreneur podcast. You know, well, what 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 kind of advices can you give to people that are maybe thinking about going to law school? Maybe they are already in law school. They're about to graduate. Maybe they want to get in their foot into the industry. What what would you recommend? You know, the advice that I would give somebody coming out of law school who is you know wants is interested in getting into this field is. You have to absolutely know your. You got to uh, figure out the skill, figure out the skill set, learn your craft, and learn the A to Z because, and that takes years. I mean, you don't just start developing relationships with brokers and developing developing a client base overnight. You've got to do your homework. You've got to understand the legal issues that are that are happening. You've got to become extremely proficient at what you do because a buyer is gonna gonna know. Um, you know what your knowledge base is, and how responsive are you, and how creative can you get in your contract drafting? Do you know ways to keep closing costs down? Those are all things that you have to learn right out of law school. Right. So the basics. The, you need to learn you the basics. Do you learn closing costs at law school? No, they don't teach you anything <laughs> at law school you except probably for graduate knowing really nothing. You know you very little. <laughs> I mean, that's the honest truth. You understand, uh, you know, you read a lot of cases on uh, due process and First Amendment rights and, and gun. I mean, those are all fascinating topics. Great. But that Super is not, not going to help you close that's the deal. That's not how you have to do deal. <laughs> no. That, right. you, the word SEMA, right, <laughs> is not. Or FERPTA. Or FERPTA. Yeah, those, 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 yeah, those types of words are not. Does it happen? No. <laughs> and, and so you've got to, I think you've got to really learn your craft cut your teeth with somebody who knows what they're doing um, 
And then eventually, once you know what you're doing and you have a, a strong handle of the, of the, uh, of the practice uh, in that legal area, you will start meeting people that are like-minded, that are hungry, that work hard. You and I, I feel like, are very like-minded. We both are, are uh, hungry. very hungry. We're driven. We want to do a great service for our clients. We want to grow our network of, above and beyond. There you go. So that's, that's my great my advice. Advice. So, so now you, you've been relatively successful uh, selling $100 million last year. Good start. Obviously, when you look at the bigger picture of things, that's not the end, right? What is your ultimate goal in the next two, th two three years? And what kind of legacy do you want to establish for yourself, let's just say, for the next 20 to 30 years? Yeah, I, I want to continue to grow... Um, a very well-respected real estate practice and a practice group where brokers feel incredibly comfortable referring their clients to me, they refer each other to me, and that, I'm, that they think that I'm the most responsive attorney uh, in New York. I want attorneys to work with me that are equally as responsive, knowledgeable, um, and respected. I think just continuing to grow what we're building is, is very important. That's the ultimate goal. Yeah. Good. Great. So, uh, Danielle has, so let's see, just, she let's went get it. deep today. <laughs> Danielle went let's deep get today, it. so just get oh ready, get ready. All right, how does being a real estate lawyer change how you view real estate in New York City as a potential <laughs> buyer or because you are also a buyer yourself? Uh, how does it change my view in New York City? I, I think in, I'll, a good example is I'll be walking down the street on a Saturday going to get dinner with... Um, with my soon-to-be wife, uh, and and we'll pass a building and an address that just sounds familiar, and I'll look and I'll say, oh, I did a I did a deal in that building, and these are the issues in the building, and the building has an underlying mortgage that is or is not problematic, and they have a, a bed bug issue, just just kind of um, pulling back the curtain on these buildings that, as a kid, I would come to New York and look up and be awe and awe at, just getting a better understanding as to how they look and how they feel and how, how transactions happen in them to me is just something that I'm will continue to do and it's a super rewarding thing. Nice. I feel yeah. the same way as yeah. an agent too. You know so much more about the yeah, I know buildings that, that you're walking. Yeah, past. for better or worse. Exactly. For better or worse. <laughs> That's it. No, come on you you have a personal about, question too. Come on now. Question. Switching um, into law. After a different, a different career. Oh, after KPMG for a year? If I had to... Yeah, what's your you? advice for people who are looking to change careers from one industry to another? And does your accounting background help uh, you? Somebody who's looking to change careers, get get experience in that field before you, you jump ship and do law school, right? I think if you're Did gonna, you jump ship? I jump ship out of accounting. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. bet I did. <laughs> Uh, what were you doing at KPMG? Were you audit? I was. Uh, I was. I was in the audit practice group there. Yeah. And what kind of companies were you? Um, I was working okay. at a cosmetic company for a while. I audited a cell phone company. I I did a couple of. I was on a rotation. It's a great company to work for. It's just sure. accounting was not not. Was after you, for me. after after, after doing it for five years. Yeah, I did it for one. Oh, I did it. it I studied it for four years. Yeah, but a great place to work. I really, I actually really enjoyed it, and I keep in touch with some people that I work there with. It was really great, great place to Does work. Your accounting knowledge help you in your law practice now? I think so. Look, I review, I review hundreds right. of fin financial statements every year. 
for so different buildings, right? I, I review hundreds of them. Yep. And so uh, you got to understand how to read a balance sheet. What, yep. is, what is a balance sheet? Yep. What, what are the line <laughs> items on there? What is an income statement? Those are important things that I don't, you know, I'm sure I would hope most transactional attorneys understand what they're reading. Yeah. But Let's talk about this real quick. So yeah. what do you look for in a building? And from what I see, the same thing. No building is also perfect. What types of things make a building financially sound? Or, you know, what do you look for and what do you see? Good question. I, when I'm doing due diligence on a building, I start and then end again. I'll review them at the end of the process, but I start with the financials. And the types of things you can really paint a, a pretty clear picture on a building's health and what's going on from the financials. And so with the balance sheet, what are the things I'm looking for? Um, are there receivables, meaning are, are the shareholders or unit owners not paying their association fees on time? If you're not, why? Um, does the building have a reserve fund, meaning a rainy day fund, that's set aside for pet projects or capital improvements? Or unexpected costs of yeah. gas or... Or whatever the case... Litigation. Lit or litigation. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so you could you see that. Does the building have an underlying mortgage that is owed? Does the building own the land on which it sits? Is the building operating at a gain or loss? What are the operating expenses? I mean, these sorts of things are, are critical in determining the financial stability of a building. And then also in the, in the footnotes, which are incredibly important, and I know reading financial statements, are, is bo it's a boring thing to do for a lot of people, but you go to the financials, it's going to disclose in there, is there a flip tax? How many units are in the building? Is there litigation? Is there a, is, are the, uh, the workers uh, participating in the union? So there's a whole host of things that you can determine by reading the financials that every buyer, and I give this to my buyers, I walk them through it, I explain to them what the sort of metrics I look for, right? For example, your reserve should be a certain percentage of your operating expense. Your, your underlying mortgage should be you know, a certain size based on the number of units, so on and so forth. And I give my clients um, what my thoughts are in the building. Can you give me an example of a really badly managed building financially and why? A poorly managed building is a building that is not collecting association fees from unit owners in full and on time. Um, it doesn't have, it has a zero reserve. Mm -hmm. um, it uh, doesn't own the land on which it sits. Um, and, the, and the land lease is coming up to expire. Um, What's 57th Street? The, the, um, the income that they do generate is not enough to cover the basic operating expenses. Sure. They're imposing enormous capital assessments. Sure. There's an enormous there's enormous litigation going on in the building. That's the, like that's a the dream. You know, <laughs> these are the sorts of things that I'm looking for. These are red flags that each one in and of itself might not be a showstopper for a buyer to buy, but I want my clients to know these are the risks. This is what I'm getting into, and I know that after I buy, am I is my maintenance going to go up, or am I going to be hit with an assessment? What's the likelihood of that? That's what we want to avoid. Sure. Okay. It's not an exact science. I was going to hope you were going to give me an address or something, but it's all good. <laughs> no, it's no, all no, good. No. Uh, if you want any addresses, just email me. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the lowdown. Uh, at any event, all right. So uh, I really appreciate it. I know you we're running out of time here, so I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. Uh, just to close out, is there any message that you would like to give to the listeners or a, maybe talk about a funny factoid about yourself? Funny foul, man, you're really putting me on the spot here to close it out. I, I would tell close like a funny it. joke, but... Uh -oh. just, or you could tell a funny joke. Um, we're, we're very flexible here. Like Kyle Blackie would say, 
My middle name is Flexible. My middle name is Flexible. All right, I like that. Uh, I have no story. I have no joke. I'm boring. But thank you for having me. And uh, I look. I I appreciate you having me on. And I look forward to continuing reading your newsletters and your podcast. Daniel, you're doing awesome. Thank you. All right, great. Thank you all for listening to Real Talk Podcast. See you next episode. Bye bye.